from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Does your love for the lost expose as it must the great hate and selfishness of the world around you? Then prepare to be hated and even spit upon for Christ's sake. Do not be under an illusion as to what it means truly to follow Jesus, for Jesus himself did not allow anyone to be deceived on that subject. He told his disciples that following him meant a cross. As someone has said, he never hid his scars to win disciples. On the other hand, you can know that to be with him in his suffering is to be identified with him and to allow him to bring glory through you to his own name. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, The Inescapable Evidence. Have you ever tried to present an unbeliever with evidence in support of Christianity? You could explain the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the existence of God, and offer other reasons for believing in Jesus. Perhaps you must realize that to an unbelieving friend or family member, the greatest evidence for Christianity is you, ordinary people whose lives are completely transformed by the saving love of Christ are the greatest evidence of the truth and power of the gospel. The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 12, verses 9-11. through 11. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, The Inescapable Evidence. There's no novelty at all in the idea of trying to destroy evidence. In colloquial language, we even speak of burying the evidence. If one is innocent, of course, there's no need to destroy evidence. If one is guilty, this is at least one way of trying to avoid conviction and maintain a facade. And when we think of it, we soon recognize that this is nothing new. For one thing, we do it ourselves. We try to cover over facts that present us in a less than favorable light. For another, we find similar cases from other periods of world history. Here's a biblical example. Many people of the Jews therefore knew that he, that is, Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus." These verses tell us that as a result of Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus himself had become important as evidence, evidence that Jesus was right in his teaching and that the rulers of the people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, were wrong. The Pharisees and Sadducees were therefore seeking to destroy the evidence by killing Lazarus. You know, it's a sad picture in some ways, such things always are, but it's humorous too when we remember that the decision to start killing people was reached after Caiaphas had first argued, 
it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. That time it was one, but now the rulers are finding out that one will not do. Jesus is not enough. Now it is Lazarus also. In time it will be Stephen and James and Peter and then the many other martyrs. Such is the course of trying to cover up evidence for a truth, and we know that well from current history. It's as if the truth were an artesian well or spring. A person can try to hide it by covering it up with dirt. For a time that may work, particularly if it's a tiny stream. But sooner or later, the water will just come bubbling through, bearing the dirt with it. And the efforts to cover it up, no matter how great, will be wasted. G. Campbell Morgan writes on this point in his commentary, Hostility to God, as manifested in Christ, has been the characteristic of the world ever since the days of Jesus and Lazarus, and it has ever been trying to get rid of him. How many have they put to death in the endeavor? Pilate probably thought he'd done the business presently when he put Jesus on the cross. When he handed him over, it must have been with a sort of sense of relief that it was done with. Done with? Why, Within a couple of generations, the power he represented had to repeat the martyrdom of Jesus 10,000 times over, even in Rome itself. Well, that's the point, or at least one of the two points of this message. The evidence for the truth of Christ's teaching and of his power to change lives is undestroyable and therefore inescapable. The other point, since I suppose that we should really separate them, is that those who are Christians are the evidence and should therefore be equally undestroyable and inescapable. You and I are the evidence if we are Christians. Are you? Are you really? If so, you should be like Lazarus, whom we find in this story, and should share his experience. Now, what is it that we learn about Lazarus in these verses from John 12? We learn several things, the first of which is that he had become an irresistible attraction. An irresistible attraction. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And now people were coming to Bethany not just to see Jesus, whom many had seen before, but also to see Lazarus and hear his story. The text says, many of the Jews, therefore, knew that he, that is, Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. I wonder if you are irresistible as evidence of the truth of Christ's teaching. I wonder further if you are really an attraction by which men and women are finding him. Are you good bait? Has your life been made so delicious by Jesus that others cannot resist biting and thereby getting caught by the greatest of all fishermen? As I ask those questions, I know that you may have to admit that you are not irresistibly attractive in the sense about which I'm speaking, and you may be concerned about it. If you are, let me point out the two things that made Lazarus attractive and show how they apply to you. First, Lazarus had been brought to life by Jesus. He had been dead. He had no hope of making any physical recovery. Others, even his own sisters, Mary and Martha, had no hope of reviving him. 
But Jesus came, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Granted, none of us has ever been physically dead, so we cannot say that we've been brought back to physical life by Jesus. But we have been dead spiritually. The Bible teaches this when it declares that we were dead in trespasses and sins, being dead we were without hope of recovery, just as Lazarus was, and then Jesus came and called us, as a result of which we were made alive and rose up at his voice to follow him. This is the case of all who are Christians. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to have been made alive by Jesus. Consequently, we too can be an attraction by which others find Jesus if we have really been made alive by him. Another way of saying the same thing is to say that ultimately, it is not we who are attractive, it is Jesus. Therefore, he must be in us if he is to attract others to himself through us. Is Jesus in you? Are you a thoroughly converted person? If not, remember what Jesus said to Peter shortly before his crucifixion. He said, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This meant that Peter was in no position to help others until he had himself, after his cowardly denial of Jesus, turned again to Jesus and been changed by him. The second thing we notice about Lazarus is that he was with Jesus. Indeed, John stressed this, for he points out that at the dinner given for Jesus in Bethany, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. I can imagine Lazarus being constantly by Jesus in these days, so that those who came to see Jesus saw Lazarus, and those who came to see Lazarus inevitably saw Jesus. Can anything be plainer? Put yourself in the place of Lazarus, and then conclude, I will help others to see Jesus to the degree that I spend time with Jesus. It's easy to see why this is so. For those who spend time with Jesus become like Jesus. And Jesus, to say it once again, is the true attraction. Ralph Kuyper of the Conservative Baptist Seminary in Denver, Colorado, writes that this truth was one factor in his own discovery of the secret of effective witnessing. Before this time, he had looked upon people as fish to be caught, so he says, and he was distressed that so many ungrateful people would not cooperate in letting him save them. He imagined, so he says, that their obstinacy would cause him to get an F on his report card in heaven. Then he discovered that his first job was not to win souls, but rather to be like Jesus. He writes, Turning to the scripture, I was stunned by what I found. I discovered that my first duty was not to win souls for Christ. My primary obligation was to live for him in the daily tasks which were mine, so that the people with whom I came in contact might see God's salvation in action. After he had learned the secret of being with Christ, and therefore of becoming like Christ, the job of witnessing became the joy of leading others to him. I need to point this out in the opposite way, too. I have said that as we spend time with Jesus, we will become like Jesus, and therefore become an attraction for him. But on the other hand, I also need to say that we will be like him only to the extent that we spend time with him. To put it in other words, our time of Bible study and prayer cannot be neglected. 
Here I can profitably quote from Hugh Hopkins' excellent little book, Henceforth. He writes, The practical side to victory over sin lies in the keeping of a quiet time with God. It's then that faith is fed, and holiness cultivated, and victories won. Nothing in the life of the Christian is more attacked than his times alone with God, yet nothing is more essential if he is to go forward in the spiritual life. Frequent interviews with his master are the secret of abiding in him. All the saints of the past have been men who have made time to see their king's face. The essential point is determination and sincerity of purpose rather than length of time. The closed door and the quiet spirit are what the father requires of his children when they would meet with him. One other fact follows from the truth that Lazarus spent time with Jesus. He became courageous. It was not easy to be courageous in such times, for the friends of Jesus as well as Jesus were in danger. But if they were near him, they could be bold even though danger threatened. Now there's a second characteristic that we learn about Lazarus from these verses. The first is that he was an irresistible attraction, as I've pointed out. The second is that he was a threat to unbelievers. In this case, the unbelievers were the chief priests. We read of them, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. There were two ways in which Lazarus was a threat to these men, as William Barclay has pointed out. First, they were threatened politically. We've already seen in our study of the last chapter that the chief priests were the wealthy, aristocratic rulers of the Jewish people. They were not particularly religious, but they were successful. They were at the top of the social heap, and they thus had much to lose. In Roman times, a conquered people were often permitted great freedom in governing themselves as the Jews were. But let an insurrection start, even a small civil disobedience, and at once the Roman armies cracked down. Usually, they executed the insurrectionists and then removed from authority those who had been responsible for keeping the peace. Well, these were the days of Passover— Excitement was running high. The chief priest saw Jesus as the leader of a potential rebellion. Everything he did inflamed the situation, so they believed. The raising of Lazarus inflamed it most of all. So they were threatened by Lazarus and therefore determined to remove him as a political factor. May I point out that the one who spends enough time with Jesus will always become a threat to unbelievers, particularly those whose chief interest is in maintaining their own position, the status quo. This does not mean that believers in Jesus will become revolutionaries in the political sense, at least not with violence. But it does mean that they will become revolutionaries in a far deeper sense, for by their very values they will be a challenge to the established and selfish comfort of mere political authority. Christians have always been a threat in this sense, at least to the degree that they become like Jesus. Moreover, Lazarus was a threat to the chief priests in another sense, too. He was a threat to their beliefs or theology. 
We must remember that the chief priests were all Sadducees, and that unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. It was the Sadducees who had tried to trap Jesus with the problem regarding the seven brothers who had each been married to the same woman. They had asked, "'Whose wife shall she be in the resurrection?' Well, here were these Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And what happened? Well, suddenly, they are confronted with his unknown man, Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. What were they to do? Where could they turn? These men were threatened politically then, and they were threatened theologically. So, unless they could take decisive action, both their power and the influence of their teaching would soon be slipping from beneath their feet. There was only one course for them to follow. Since they would not believe in Jesus, the only thing they could do was seek to eliminate Lazarus. So, he who had become a threat to them through no fault of his own was threatened by them. May I ask whether or not you have become a threat to anybody because of your testimony? If you have, you will know it soon enough, for it's likely that you yourself will be threatened. Does your life challenge anybody through its Christ-like character? Then prepare to be defamed. Does your testimony, with its clear logic and unimpeachable experience, strike home to the hearts of those who hear you? Then be prepared to be called a fool for your testimony. Does your love for the lost expose, as it must, the great hate and selfishness of the world around you? Then prepare to be hated and even spit upon for Christ's sake. Do not be under an illusion as to what it means truly to follow Jesus, for Jesus himself did not allow anyone to be deceived on that subject. He told his disciples that following him meant a cross. As someone has said, he never hid his scars to win disciples. On the other hand, you can know that to be with him in his suffering is to be identified with him and to allow him to bring glory through you to his own name. There's one final thing that we learn about Lazarus from these verses. It's for this, perhaps above all, that Christ's enemies wish to destroy him. We've already seen that he was an attraction. We've seen, too, that he was a threat. Notice, finally, that he was also a blessing. For many, we are told, believed on Jesus because of Lazarus. Here was a man so much alive because of Jesus and so identified with him in discipleship that others believed on Jesus just because of him. The application is obvious. Has anyone believed on Jesus because of you? Can it be said of you by reason of him or her? Many believed on Jesus? Let me share this with you in closing. 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where I served as pastor, held a missionary conference, which was attended on this occasion by four of our veteran missionaries. Two were a couple who have given more than 30 years of their lives to working in unevangelized fields in Africa. Another, together with her husband, has done pioneer Bible translation work in Mexico. The last has spent over 40 years in Spain. These presented their work at a series of meetings and dinners during the week, and then eventually returned to their fields. After they were gone, 
I received this letter from a woman who has been a member of the church for many years and had attended the conference. She wrote this, I started attending Tenth Church while in college and have followed ever since then the work of these three missionaries who had just then left for missionary service. The Walls, one of the couples, have evangelized Kenya in that time. They have trained and sent out workers. They have established churches and Bible schools. Maria Bolette, in that same time, has been training Spanish missionaries in a Bible school and has sent those trained throughout Spain. She has operated summer camps. She has been persecuted several times, been put out of Spain, and then allowed to return. Now the children of her earlier converts are attending camps, and the mothers are crying out for more camps. In that time, the Lathrops have reduced a language to writing, have translated the New Testament into that language, and have evangelized the entire Tarascan area of Mexico. They have established an indigenous church there. I have pursued my profession at home and overseas, and have a few years remaining, a satisfying career. But who will greet me in heaven when I arrive there and say, I am here because you gave your life to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will count me such a blessing? Now, I know this person well enough to know that she has been a blessing. I know that quite a few have come to know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of her testimony. It's always people like that who raise this kind of question. But still, the question stands. It stands for me and for you. Have you been brought to spiritual life by Jesus? Can others tell that you have been with Jesus? Have any believed on Jesus because of your testimony? God grant that this might be true of each of us, or that we will allow God to make it true as we increasingly spend time with Jesus.
And now, our Father, we ask you to bless this study to each heart and the life and mind of each one who is listening. Grant particularly that your people who are called by your name might spend such time with Jesus that they become like him, and as a result of that, become a blessing to the many who yet have to call upon his name. For we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? May our lives be a daily testimony to the grace and power of Jesus Christ. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, The Inescapable Evidence, or simply ask for message number 1328. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, The Inescapable Evidence, message number 1328. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.